0: Hey, everyone. This is Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge.
1: You know, I really believe that the world is this. Each state is an incredible experiment on how to run government, how to run economic policy. And I think it's important to look at which countries are doing well, which countries are succeeding. And everyone always talks about how incredible America is. And it is. I believe this is the greatest country in the world. But at the same time, we also have to understand that 50% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. We do have a lot of issues that need to be dealt with, but I see unlimited potential. We just need good leaders to step up and help try and take us there.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome back. We are really excited today to bring you Jimmy Crumpacker. And you may know Jimmy Crumpacker as the Trump backer who ran in the <laughs> second congressional district last time around. Jimmy is a seventh generation Oregonian, which we talk a little bit about in the episode. And he spent some time in Washington, D.C., and worked on Wall Street for a number of years before moving back to Oregon and managing his own investments here. He's also been involved in a number of community organizations such as Meals on Wheels and the Portland Japanese Garden, as well as the Oregon Ballet. So Ben, how would
2: you think the episode went? So I'm going to start by saying this. Jimmy Crumpacker had the greatest distance between what I thought the interview was going to go like versus what the interview actually went like of any of our guests. I was most surprised by Jimmy of any of our guests. He is deeply intelligent. He reads The Economist cover to cover and speaks as though he does. We spent a lot of time talking about geopolitics at the beginning, which we were supposed to be talking about his personal background, and we took some turns. But the conversation was fascinating. Alex got the first ever cryptocurrency question in on the Oregon Bridge pod, so kudos to Alex. We talked about China in a way that we've been trying to talk about China for a long time, and we actually got there in this one. And we spent some time talking about Investments and state investments in the politics of making decisions about maximizing profits gains for investors slash taxpayers slash retirees versus trying to use investments as a means to achieve some other ends, a social or political ends, which I thought all of that was fascinating. But yeah, I, I thought it was a deeply interesting interview and was glad that we got to talk to him. Alex, what do you make about his run for the new fifth CD?
0: Yeah, it was a really interesting episode, and he clearly has some real policy chops. And we really grilled him from Bitcoin, international capital flows, to inflation, to energy, to various conservative, more focused issues, race and justice. Yeah, he really went through the full ringer. And I think, you know, especially for a lot of our Democratic listeners, the 5th Congressional District Democratic primary is going to be super fascinating because you have political heavyweight, Kurt Schrader versus Jamie McLeod Skinner, who is obviously a political heavyweight in her own right. And then on the GOP side of things, you're going to have Jimmy, who I think people will be impressed just by listening to the episode, versus Lori Chavez-Daremer, who our pod listeners also know very well, who's been on either two or three times now. So the 5th Congressional District is easily going to make national news, both in the primary as well as in the general. And it would not surprise me if Groups already started spending money just on the primary election alone, just trying to basically edge out who they think will be the best candidate. So really interesting episode though. I was really glad we could have him on. And yeah, that was, you know, hope everybody enjoys uh, listening. And please make sure to subscribe and hit the five stars button as well if your platform so allows it. And definitely check us out on YouTube. Jimmy did not get to show his French bulldog, which he said that he was babysitting. But uh, Ben and I got to see it at the end and it was very cute, so.
2: Yes, it was. All right, everybody. We really appreciate your support of the podcast. And if you're listening to, I guess this will come out sometime after the holidays, maybe just before the new year or just after, but either way we hope that you've enjoyed the holiday season and here's hoping 2022 is better for all of us than 2021. Enjoy the episode.
0: All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. And today we have Jimmy Crumpacker. Jimmy, how are you doing today?
1: I'm great. I'm great. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. You know, all is well. Although uh, I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed in my fantasy football team because I think I'm going to lose in the playoffs right now. Which is a major bummer. But.
0: Yeah, I'm in the Oregon GOP league. Oh, I started wow. the season either four and zero or five and zero, and when I checked last, I was four and six. So oh, uh, I don't know what type of corruption and rig has happened in this league, but we need an investigation immediately.
2: Can you can, oh, you, can, you, drop, can you drop any names? Who is there? Who's winning that league? I'll have to check on that. It's a good okay. question.
0: Okay. Uh, I know it's definitely not Reagan. So. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so it's someone. But yeah, Jimmy, so really happy to have you on the show. And usually, I tell our guests, as I told you, I said, please don't talk about your background, because of course, we're going to cover that in the intro. But in breaking from tradition for this episode, I was able to find your old campaign bio from your website, uh, which gave me a little bit of information, but. I was kind of surprised of like the lack of information I was able to find, considering that you've run for Congress before, and you're obviously a very successful businessman. Could you just take us a little bit, give us a little bit about your personal background? I know that you're a seventh generation Oregonian. I know you went to Georgetown and we're in DC, spent some time there. Give us your full background.
1: Sure. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate the opportunity. I am a seventh generation Oregonian. Our family came out about 170 years ago, and were established actually down in Jacksonville in the Medford area. I was born to parents that met uh, when they were probably five and three years old. They went to the same public school, same school that I went to. And then, yes, I went to the East Coast for school, to Georgetown University, where I studied government and was actually an intern for Gordon Smith back in 2001 spring of 2001 which was a great time to be an intern although it's it's not a not a very interesting job you basically are just opening letters and and giving tours so but you get <laughs> you get an idea in a sense of the mechanics of government but constituent letters aren't necessarily you know the most fascinating part of government but a necessary one and after or actually during when i was at georgetown i thought about going right into government but a very close friend of my mom's who was very well established in republican politics told me i needed to go and get a business background because she said if you go straight into politics you're not going to have a sense of how the real world works which i think was one of the best pieces of advice i ever received so Upon graduating from Georgetown and moved to New York City, and I started working on Wall Street. And I worked uh, originally at AIG for a couple of years, and then I got a job on a commodity trading desk. And for until I ran for my last congressional seat in 2019, I had been trading commodities for 13 years. So from 2006 until 2019. So, and I moved back from New York after seven years at a firm called First New York Securities which was a prop trading shop. We basically had 250 traders and you were given a percentage of the profits you made. It was a very challenging place to work because over my seven years there, we fired something like 75 people off of a desk of 12 traders, because if you lost money, they would just fire you immediately. Wow! So I was looking to leave New York. I loved New York in my 20s once I got in my 30s, it just wasn't the energy level. just wasn't the same. And so I wanted to get back home. So I had an opportunity to move back home. And I did that and started a fund and had a great run. And, and once I moved back home, I was able to really get involved in the community, which was really important to me. So I went very deep in a couple of different uh, for a couple of different organizations in the Portland metropolitan area and did that. And then I, you know, I moved to Bend in 2019 and ran for Congress. So that is that's the quick and dirty of it.
0: Great. And we will talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But there is one personal interest question that I have to ask you because I just got done reading the Bitcoin Billionaires book by Ben Mesrick, which is about the Winklevoss twins. And I had read an article that they uh which they coined as celebrity donors, which I thought was was pretty fun. And you know, the the book, I don't know if you've read the book, it's pretty biased towards the Winklevoss twins, but I mean they do seem like incredibly intelligent and nice guys. And obviously, I mean, I think they're both worth like 5 or $6 billion each now. How do you know the Winklevoss twins? What's the background there?
1: Great story. And I actually have read the book. They actually sent me a signed copy, which was very generous. <laughs> of them. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. yeah. And, so and they, actually, just
0: for context for viewers real quick, the Winklevoss twins were the other co-founders of Facebook who got into a lawsuit with Mark Zuckerberg, basically claiming that Mark Zuckerberg had stolen their idea when they were all students at Harvard. And they received a pretty handsome payout in terms of a lawsuit, but uh, they felt very wronged basically by Zuckerberg getting all the credit for Facebook when it was originally their idea.
1: Yeah, and in the movie The Social Network, I think that's probably where people would would know yeah. them best from. But I actually went to uh, college with their older sister. She went to Georgetown and was very close with one of my roommates. So got to know the twins there are. Really interesting guys and obviously incredibly successful. And we're very generous to my last campaign.
0: That's yeah, awesome. and then question there before I know Ben wants to jump in. Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. If you know the twins, sure. are you an active cryptocurrency investor yourself? Or is that an area <laughs> that you've considered getting into?
1: Yeah, no, I uh, <laughs> I hate to give financial advice on a <laughs> podcast. But, yeah, I have invested in um in digital currencies, I think, especially now with what we're seeing in inflation and uh sadly kind of runaway deficits in the United States and in other central banks around the world, I think that there is a future. Now, is it gonna go straight up? No. I mean, if you're gonna invest in something like this, you have to be prepared for, you know, 30, 40 percent drops in perhaps one month times. So I would look at it almost like the emergence of the dot com market in the, you know, in the late nineties where obviously you know companies like Amazon came out of that but at the same time you had pets.com and you had a number of other companies that weren't very successful. So I would caution people in investing, but I think in a long term, uh, I think it will be successful.
2: Uh, kudos to, to Alex for the first crypto question in podcast history. <laughs> and Jimmy, you might be one of the few guests who could actually give uh, an informed answer to the question. So, <laughs> so that was good. Would um, not be
0: surprised if you ran into it on the campaign trail. So Yeah, yeah I guess. Yeah, no. it's
2: certainly rising in people's minds. So my question is about, so when you ran, and we'll get into this a little bit later, You ran as like a very conservative candidate. You were endorsed by Oregon Firearms Federation, Oregon Right to Life, National Right to Life, Susan B. Anthony List, like some very heavy hitters on the conservative side. So I was interested to hear your experience about working on Wall Street, which, and and you were very pro-Donald Trump when you ran um, the first time. And Trump was sort of like famously anti-Wall Street in some ways. And sort of, you know, was at least in the campaign of 16 versus I think you could quibble with how he governed and argue that perhaps that wasn't how he governed. But he ran as kind of anti-Wall Street, anti-wealthy, anti-powerful establishment, etc. So I'm curious. From your perspective, as someone who's kind of lived on that side of the country in those power circles and then come back to a more rural place in Oregon, how do you think about that sort of like populist appeal of Trump sort of running against what he calls a rigged system? And like, does that resonate with you based on the experiences that you had? Or or do you think that you have a different take?
1: Yeah, you know, if you looked at the way that Trump talked about the markets, I mean, he was every time... The market hit a new high he would tweet it out right so it seemed to me as though he was a huge cheerleader of the markets but i understand the point that you're getting at he definitely came at it from hey you know there's a lot of uh, people in america are not getting the advantages that these stock markets are you know the high uh, stock market valuations um and so that is a really interesting juxtaposition. So, and I agree with him with a lot of that. You know, obviously, there's a great section of America that is not invested at all in the stock market. So, yes, although it does help raise a lot of people, and obviously, someone like yourself, Ben, who, you know, is very progressive and cares about unions and teachers, you know, the PERS system, I mean, they, grant, they benefit greatly from the stock market. So, you know, I think it is across all spectrums, but I understand what you're saying, because he was really talking about the people that have not gotten the advantages of the American economy, you know, because everyone always talks about how incredible America is. And it is. I believe this is the greatest country in the world for many reasons. But at the same time, we also have to understand that 50% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, right? And so that is something that has a significant impact, not only on Oregon, because if you go to rural. Oregon. There are a lot of towns that they don't care what the price of Amazon stock is. But you know, I think Donald Trump was really speaking to them, saying, "Hey,
2: we need to try and lift up that portion of the economy." So, one follow up I have, and I didn't prepare this, but you mentioned investments. One of the, I don't know if you saw this or if listeners saw this, but there was a controversy in the Democratic primary for governor where one candidate, I believe it was Speaker Kotek, came out and basically said the state should not be investing in fossil fuel companies. And there have been several other iterations of this where activists will say we shouldn't invest state dollars in certain areas that they find harmful in one way or another. And then the response from the state treasurer, Tobias Reed, was essentially, we have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize gains for Oregonians, for taxpayers, for PERS recipients, et cetera, who benefit from the investments. How do you think about, and there's been some calls on the right as well to boycott potential companies or countries who aren't aligned with the values of conservatives. So I wonder, given your experience, how you think about government investments and investing in potentially controversial areas?
1: That's a great question. You know, certainly there are investment practices that, you know, if you looked at the pressure that was put on south africa right with apartheid i mean with i don't think if there hadn't been divestment then then they wouldn't the government would have changed right, right. but if you i look at something like fossil fuels that is something i mean as, especially as it was an area that i invested in for a long time that i look at and i say unfortunately they're trying to score political points without realizing who they're hurting in the economy right so and i say that because The bottom 20% of the wealth in America, right? The bottom 20 band, 29% of their post-tax earnings are spent on transportation, i.e. their car, fixing their car, and gasoline. That is an incredible amount of money that's going into transportation. And if you ban as many investment vehicles, as many endowments, if you look at the um, sovereign wealth fund of Norway, which the irony is incredible because they've gained all their wealth from oil drilling, divesting almost $41 trillion has been taken out of investing in hydrocarbons. And so, what we've seen over the last five or six years is this incredible amount of divestment, which means that the Western oil companies are going to lose power, which is really not a good thing on multiple levels. Not only because the price of gasoline is going to go way up as it has this year, it's gone up. You know, roughly between 40 and 50 percent. At one point it was 50 percent. But also you're gonna give a lot of power to the national oil corporations, right? So, yes, the United States is the second largest producer of oil in the world, and Canada is is in the top 10, and Mexico is pretty close. But if you think about the countries that this sort of policy would benefit, Russia is the largest producer in the world. And then you're talking about Saudi Arabia, Iran. Angola, Libya, Algeria, Venezuela used to be, but unfortunately their economy is absolutely tanked after you know Chavez's policies. But what allowed actually Chavez and Putin to take incredible amounts of power was that on the run-up of oil prices between 2001 and 2008, their coffers were spilling over, right? So it, it allowed them to take absolute power over their countries. So it's a long-winded answer to say, you know, it's not that simple. By taking away investment in Exxon and Shell, you're actually, in my opinion, hurting the poorest Americans, because they are the most sensitive to price changes in gasoline. And you're also handing power back to national oil corporations and countries that I don't think necessarily have America's best interests at hand.
0: And so, uh, Jimmy, I actually have one question uh, in that realm before I know Ben has a question about your experience in energy investing, kind of the future of energy investing before we get into politics and policy, which we promised we're getting there. So and I think this actually relates to is if, you know, you were to win this race and become a member of Congress is there's been a lot of concern in D.C. And I would say it's very bipartisan. I mean, I think Democrats are as hawkish on this issue as Republicans are. Nancy Pelosi, I think, is actually one of the most hawkish on this issue but either U.S. companies or U.S. government entities themselves, such as pension funds, either on the state or the federal level, making investments in Chinese companies, both in the Chinese private sector and at Chinese state-owned firms. And I'm sort of curious from your perspective, because you worked on Wall Street. I don't know exactly if you know your firm, I imagine it probably wasn't if you're investing in energy, but like a lot of these firms, one, have led some of the investment that has both outsourced jobs to places like China, places like India and that sort of thing. Secondly is now they're taking pension funds both federally and on the state level and investing them in Chinese companies, which of course I think is bad for America and also frankly bad for shareholders because I think that it's I think there's going to be problems in the future of getting that money back if tensions keep on rising. I'm kind of curious of how you approach this as an investor, probably having some experience in the space of, do you think that the government needs to draw more firm lines in terms of allowing, you know, international capital flows and things like that, especially as you were saying into places like China, or places into Russia, which we generally see as adversaries?
1: Hmm. Right. That's a phenomenal question. and incredibly relevant, especially if you're looking at what's been happening with the Chinese oversight of tech companies. You know, from a personal standpoint, I would tell people to be incredibly cautious. She has been reigning back, uh, sorry, the leader of China. Uh, She has been really reigning in the tech companies because he thought that they had way too much power. So if you look at their stock prices over the last year, they have nose diving because the Chinese They really believe in state control of capitalism, which is not good. Basically, the state, and in my opinion, the United States should also be staying out of where people want to invest because the state is not very good at putting funds into the best places, if that makes sense. So, you know, the Chinese are incredibly complicated. You know, right now, they're obviously saber rattling over Taiwan, which is a great concern. I think that could be one of the ultimate issues that the world economy faces. Uh, You know, The Taiwanese produce 80% of the semiconductors in the world. And as you've seen with the shortage of semiconductors this year, based on the pandemic, if 80% of the production gets lost, then that's a major issue. But I don't think that Xi will actually attack Taiwan. Because if he were to lose that battle, I think he loses power in China. And I think that that's something that uh, at the end of the day, he cares more about than anything else, and that's why he's been going after these tech companies. Now, as far as companies like you know Nike, that's a great example. Obviously, you know Ron Wyden's been in the news recently for kind of protecting Nike, and this accusation that Nike is using uh, the Uyghurs. And unfortunately, the situation with the Uyghurs in China is really sad. The fact that a million Uyghurs are basically in concentration camps in Western China is, is devastating. This is actually something I was talking about on the campaign trail two years ago. But, you know, I would caution the government ever making decisions about banning capital
2: flows to countries. Why? Why not use it as, it, we've, ta- Titus and I have talked about the Uyghur issue several times and basically saying this demands a government response, an international response, much stronger than anything we've seen. So why not use capital flow as a way to incentivize better behavior? Do you just think the cost would be too high?
1: You know, I just don't see where, where the benefit comes, like where, where, like shutting off what valves? I mean, that, that's the question I would ask you guys, you know, and. Is it good for the American people to get into a tit-for-tat war, right? We have to realize the Chinese own trillions of dollars of our treasury bills, right? So what happens if they start selling our treasury bills, all right? So interest rates go up to 4%. Think about that for a second. You know, if interest rates are at 4% and we are dealing with a $29 trillion deficit, all of a sudden, we're going to be paying, paying trillions of dollars in just interest alone. So, you know, this is something that I think America has gotten a little too addicted at, is using the power of the dollar to punish countries. And countries like China and Russia are searching for other money to not use the dollar and eventually this could catch up with us it's not going to happen in the next 10 years might not happen in the next 20 years but it's a cautionary tale you know when you use the dollar as a weapon eventually that that can catch up with you
0: Great. Well, uh, Jimmy, I didn't. I did not even expect we'd get into sanction policy. I know this uh, is fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I love <laughs> this. <laughs> uh, no, I, I. You're maybe I feel like the only candidate who is not in office right now that has a position on that. Uh, <laughs> which my inner DC nerd wants to dive into. Uh, maybe we'll
1: we'll sure, transition.
0: Sure. I, uh, I mean.
1: There are countries that I, that I think we should be sanctioning. So, I mean, if you want to talk about that, we could definitely get involved. So. Okay, yeah, I'll no. buy be-
2: before we transition, give us uh, one or two countries that you think we should be sanctioning more than we already are.
1: Well- you know, uh, sanctions a strong word, but, you know, clearly there are countries that don't have our best interests in hand, right? So I look at Afghanistan, for instance, which, you know, uh, sadly, what's happened over the last six months there is devastating. And I think what you're going to see over the next couple of years is hopefully not, but you could see mass starvation. Right. And you are going to see a lack of education. You're already seeing, you know, women basically being taken out of the workplace, being taken out of the schools. And, you know, I look at Afghanistan as a major issue. And I, sadly, I blame a lot of that on Pakistan, right? Because the Pakistanis and ISI, which is basically, you know, the CIA of Pakistan, they allowed a safe harbor for the Taliban and for their troops. And so because we weren't allowed to ever go into Pakistan to attack, they could always go back there, revive, and then come back at us, you know, during the winter season. Obviously, the, the the summer season was the fighting season. So, you know, the ISI, the generals in Pakistan, and granted, after Osama bin Laden was killed on Pakistani soil, they really did not want our help. But the amount of Billions of dollars that we gave to the Pakistanis over the last 20, 25 years is, is shocking. And, and this is not a country that I think has our best interests at hand. And it is actually quite dangerous because the ISI and the generals really control the country. And Khan, who is, in theory, the elected leader, really isn't the one in control. And he's actually ceded more power to the generals than almost any other leader before him. And you look at like their skirmishes with India as well. I mean, that is very dangerous because we're talking about two nuclear armed countries. So I mean we can go we yeah. <laughs> we can go on and on if you like, but you know, so, I, mean, I, I, I care deeply about geopolitics and I think it's something that is crucial.
2: I was just going to say, so, you know, obviously I read the newspaper articles about you when you ran, I think you were most known, at least in democratic circles for the campaign ad where in fact, I think Titus has a question. It. I had no idea that we were going to get so into the weeds on this level. So this is my, uh, I think it was the Sarah Palin, Sarah Palin question where they were like, where do you get your news from? So when you're reading about geopolitics, international affairs, where are you getting this level of information? And you must just read on a daily basis about what's happening.
1: I read The Economist uh, cover to cover every week. Um, That'll do it. You know, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, and and listen, it's one of those things where it's it's so dry and hard to get into. But once you get into it, once you start getting background stories on different countries, it really pieces together a very fascinating look at the world. because. You know, I really believe that the world is this incredible, you know, each state is an incredible experiment on how to run government, how to run economic policy. And I think it's important to look at you know, which countries are doing well, which countries are succeeding and and um, which countries are not doing well. And at the end of the day. You know, I do believe America um, has been the most successful country, and you know, basically since World War II, we've tried to keep the peace as best as possible. And and especially if you look at over the last 20 years, you know, 30% of the world's population was under the poverty line, basically living on less than one dollar a day. And pre-pandemic, we got that number down to I believe you know 10%, which is remarkable. And I give the United States a lot of credit for that. But at the same time, you know, we need to be taking care of the people in our country that are at the bottom. And that I think is something that that unfortunately gets lost in Washington, Mm -hmm. DC.
0: Great. Well, Jimmy, let's go ahead and uh, we'll transition over to politics. And I was going to say policy. That's my line I had written, but we've (laughs) we've gotten (laughs) quite in depth into policy already. So tell us, so so Jimmy, your last run for Congress, which you ran in the second district, uh, you had A number of major endorsements, I know that you raised a bunch of money and that you ended up running a really competitive campaign. Now, you did end up falling short in the GOP primary, but before we get into your current run, what are some of the lessons that you had from last time around that you're
1: hoping to apply for this time? Oh, that's a great question.
2: Ben, you ran last time, right? Am I? I, I... Yeah, The, the the COVID campaign.
1: Right, so I think you can appreciate where I'm coming from, where... You know, I was running against, and you guys know better than I, probably the deepest, toughest field in an Oregon primary. Um, Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the former guy who'd run for governor in the last cycle, a former 22-year state senator, state rep, and a 13-year state rep, state senator slash. So, you know, I was going against some real heavyweights. And as the newcomer, it was super important for me to be out. Um, and meeting and shaking as many hands as possible. So, you know, I literally put 10,000 miles on my car in the first wow. month of, in January, because basically, the campaign, I my campaign didn't start till January, I didn't really even file until mid December, I think. So, you know, it was really hard, because we were really successful on the ground. And then my last campaign event, I think, was March 13th, which was Right up against it. And so I basically spent nine weeks on the couch. So the lesson that I learned, you know, it's crucial to shake someone's hand. It's crucial to be in a room with someone, you know, and we were lucky that we were able to take the lead in that race against those heavyweights. And unfortunately, once we took the lead, kind of all the, everybody trained their fire on us. And so maybe in retrospect, if we run our ads a little bit later, that might've been more effective, given them less time to to uh, attack us. But, you know, it it was such a, there was no playbook for the, for the pandemic election. and. As a younger guy like Ben, you know, we need to be out there. When you're going against established politicians that people know, it's very hard to combat that advantage that they have.
2: Yeah, that that is very similar to my thesis on. I mean, first of all, like getting a message to penetrate that wasn't related to COVID was impossible. Like it was the only, and there was also this, and I don't know if this was in the second district, but definitely in more progressive districts, like this sense of like, you want to talk about something other than COVID? Have you no sense of decency? Like COVID is the issue. People are dying. Like, we're, like people were scared. So the, the reasons why you were running in the first place were challenging to actually communicate because people didn't want to hear them. And then, yeah, my my version of being in the room or shaking someone's hand was like doors, which I guess is harder in the second congressional district, but like primary campaigns on the Democratic side are, or actually, I guess on the Republican side, we had um, Senator Tim Canope on, on one of our recent episodes, and he was talking about how in his first run for office, he, what did he say, Alex, he knocked on half the doors in the district and he lost. He got a little number. over half the vote. Or and he got a little over half, half the vote. To yeah. vote. <laughs> so the lesson was basically you have to knock on every door. So, yeah, I, I definitely identify with, with those lessons learned from the last campaign.
1: Well, yeah. And uh, you bring up a, a phenomenal point. The number one story that has ever been written about, published in world history was the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. So... Getting oxygen, you know, nobody wanted to even, you know, cover this. And this should have been one of the biggest races in Oregon history, right? I mean, we have, we had three heavyweights. We had me in the race who who raised significant funds. And getting a newspaper article was, or even, you know, footage on the nightly news, you know, on a local news channel, you know, was non existent and and i don't blame it i mean everybody thought it was the spanish flu right everyone was saying 25 million deaths and you know so there was unfortunately just not enough information and and i, I think that the voters at the end of the day they said hey we know we know cliff Bentz. you know he's a trusted hand and, and in a situation where there was so much unknown I think he was the play that most voters went with so well
2: so that brings us to today you decided that you haven't had enough punishment. You need to throw yourself in another congressional race. So this time it's a new district. And uh, in, in I would say yeah. a vastly different district, both in terms of geography, but also in terms of politics. I think, Alex, we've people are describing this as one of the closest toss-up districts in the country, probably. We'll see where everyone else lands on redistricting. But it looks like many states are moving to more polarized districts. Oregon actually moved to more competitive districts. And this, I think, is the most competitive of the three competitive districts, the new 5th Congressional District. So we know that Congressman Kurt Schrader is running for re-election in the district. Jamie McLeod Skinner is running to his left in that primary election. And uh, in your election, you have you as well as former mayor of Happy Valley, Lori Chavez dreamer So we'll get into this race a little bit. But first, why did you decide to run again? clearly the experience wasn't terrible enough to not give it one more shot, but why did you feel like it was important for you to step forward and run uh, in this election?
1: Great question. You know, I, to be very frank with you, I didn't think I'd have another opportunity to run. Um, Ever? No, I'm not saying ever, but, you know, so quickly in a congressional race, right? Because the original maps, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Earl Blumenauer's district actually wrapped down I believe, through Hood River and into Bend.
2: Oh, I so don't if, remember that. Okay.
1: Yeah, so that was the original map before the walkout happened. So, you know, you're looking at that map and you're just saying, okay, well, that's, it would be like me running against you in Tiger, right? So <laughs>
2: Bring it on, Jimmy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I do have a little history in Tigard. I don't know. Oh, really? Probably you probably don't know this about me, but I used to deliver meals for Meals on Wheels.
2: And no so- kidding.
1: I delivered out of the Tigert Center. And I think on your podcast, what was the name of the building? The Riverwood Heights? Was that the one that you were discussing that was being? um, Oh, uh,
2: Woodspring tenants, the the Woodspring apartments.
1: Yes, the Woodspring apartments. I used to deliver there. So it wasn't
2: wasn't on my route necessarily.
1: But when I would miss my route because I'd be traveling, I would do a makeup route and I would actually go to that building. So I'm aware of that building. So, uh, yeah, so... There were certain issues that I couldn't talk about in the last campaign, i.e. delivering for Meals on Wheels, right, which I had a weekly route for six or seven years, I think I delivered over 5000 meals, wow. I delivered in the Tigard area for a while. And then I actually delivered in downtown Portland, when my office moved to Old Town. And You know, I delivered to Bud Clark Commons, which um, I don't know if you guys know where that building is, but it's right across from the train station. And that is one of the grittiest parts of um, Portland. And, you know, uh, being involved in the community was super important to me. You know, I was on uh, a couple of other nonprofits that I don't think people really recognize how important these these are to the local economy. You know, I was asked to join the board of the, the ballet, for instance. And the reason I was asked was because they needed financial help, because they were about to go bankrupt. And I didn't know the first thing about ballet, but what I was told was there were 250 full and part-time jobs that were at risk if the ballet went under, and the economic impact on the city would have been incredible. Now, these were issues that I wasn't able to talk about in my last congressional race because my Achilles was that I was this Portland guy. And that and the animosity of of Eastern Oregon towards the valley is is incredible, you know, even though I spent, you know, most of my summers and in the second district, it, it didn't matter so. This district, the new district, gives me this incredible opportunity where I can talk about all this work I did in the community. My childhood home is in this, is in this district. My parents still live in this district. I played Little League Baseball in this district. So that attack on me will will no longer be relevant. So I'm excited to run. And and yes, this is a very different race. This race is gonna be potentially a 3 to $5 million race, which is, you know, incredibly expensive for a congressional race. But, you know, the Portland media market is really expensive. And this is a race where both sides are going to need candidates that can be uh, well-funded on a national level and, um, and can really put forward the argument they're the best ones to go to Congress.
2: So real quick follow-up on this race in particular, and then we've got several federal policy issues we want to talk about. So Kurt Schrader has earned the disdain of much of the left because he's perceived as moderate to conservative. He votes no on some important pieces of legislation to the left. He voted against Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. And he sort of earned this reputation as, as I think people who like him would call him a maverick, and people who don't like him would call him like a conservative Democrat, blue dog Democrat, whatever, Um, which I think he, I don't think he's chair anymore, but he used to be chair. So as a Republican, Why run against Kurt Schrader? If Kurt Schrader is one of the few members of the Democratic caucus who is broadly or at least more aligned with you than the rest of the caucus, help maybe bring you in a different direction. Why run against him?
1: I mean, doesn't his voting record say that he votes with Nancy Pelosi 80 percent of the time?
2: I guess the twenty percent is uh, is the <laughs> well,
1: I, and and, the, and that maybe that's the problem with politics in America, right? You know, it's he looks he's looked on as this evil person on the left because he goes against Nancy Pelosi twenty percent of the time. I look at him and I say, well, eighty percent of the time he is with Nancy Pelosi. So you know, there there are certain issues where I, I I look at Nancy Pelosi's agenda and I just say, you know, I don't think that this is the best path for America. You know, I'm looking at 6.9% inflation, and that is scary. And so we are younger, so we're lucky. So we don't remember what it was like in the 80s. But to give you an example, in Deschutes County, when my parents built the house on our farm in 83, there were only five housing building permits issued that entire year in Deschutes County. So that's, that's what hard to imagine. I, <laughs> you know. it's incredible, right? But that's what inflation does. Inflation. Now, I'm not saying we're going to go to 14% interest rates or whatever Volcker jacked them up to. But, you know, this is something that uh, that younger people don't appreciate how dangerous inflation is. And once you once inflation starts rolling, that is it's really scary. So, yes, I get it that he doesn't pass that test, the purity test on the left. And, and that's why he's, uh, you have someone coming from his left in the primary. And, you know, and this is also something that's a problem with um, the House of Representatives in general, um, right? You, 20 years ago, you probably had 180 districts. Maybe it was 150. You're going to have to give me a little leeway. To, don't hold me to these numbers. I think it was maybe 150 districts that could flip between Democrat and Republican in every race. And I think we're down to... 80 at this point so and that's you know, probably what we,
2: a generous definition of flippable like it's, right. it's a really small number of, right like yeah and, and, yeah. And, and, yeah
1: yeah so basically we're talking about 350 districts where you know someone like earl blumenauer he's not worried about the republican he's worried about getting attacked from the left like you know, like Cliff Bentz, you know, like he's not worried about the Democrat. He's worried about getting attacked from the right. So, you know, these are these are things that that the country has to deal with, you know, and unfortunately, this polarization, that's part of the reason for it.
0: Yeah. And and Jimmy, before we this dives a little bit into the policy, before we dive, uh, because I do want to ask you a question about inflation and tariffs as well. In terms of like policy, flippable districts, swing districts and all that stuff. I just want to quickly read, and I think I found this on your Twitter page, but your bio from last time, maybe this is one of your ads. It says I'm a gun packing, Trump backing, send them packing conservative. Oregonians deserve a voice in DC who will stand tall for our values and not concede anything to the radical socialists. First of all, I love all of those things. Uh, you know, we could only send Ben packing in Tiger. But, you know, that, that would really put the cherry on top of it. Uh, Titus was
2: the target audience for that ad, and it landed.
0: <laughs> I, I saw it, on, it. It was a beautiful Facebook ad. I saw it. You know, but I did just want to ask. Right, you, you know, obviously ran in a a very conservative district before. You have to highlight specifically issues that were going to appeal to mostly conservative primary voters because. Of course, whoever would have run against you, ran against Cliff Bench, ran against New Bueller, they would have lost dramatically. And the person did lose dramatically, probably by like 15 or 20 points. I don't remember the exact total. I think uh, it was like 25. 20. Okay. So it, it, even worse margin than that. Yeah. In terms of this district, one, right? It's like a swingy district. You're gonna have to appeal to a lot more of diverse range of audience, right? You have really conservative rural voters and then also really progressive voters in cities, and then you have moderate suburban voters. What are the sort of issues that you want to define your, and I do want to ask you this too, because, you know, COVID's coming back. Hopefully that won't drown out every campaign issue, but like, what are the types of issues that you want to define your campaign this time around with this new district?
1: Yeah, I think that some critical issues are relevant from my last race to to this race. Um, I think the timber issue is, is a critical one. And it's, it's a little bit like divesting from the oil markets you know the timber business was when i was a kid in oregon we had 85000 timber workers right these were working hard working blue collar jobs living wage salaries that didn't require a, a higher degree and unfortunately that number has come from 85000 to 25000 so i think that that is really important and you know the environmentalists have been highly effective at blocking our use of federally managed lands. We used to get 50% of our timber from the federal lands. That number is down to 10% at this point, right? So that is something that, in my opinion, it was a critical mistake. And especially if you go and ask the environmentalists, you put them on truth serum and you say, okay, was this really a good policy? Because at the end of the day, we hurt 60,000 blue collar workers by eliminating those jobs. You know, and if you look at a lot of the a lot of the towns in the district, um, especially over the San Diego Pass, um, unfortunately these towns remind me a lot of what happened to Pittsburgh. Um, basically in the early eighties, Pittsburgh lost 25% of its population in two years when the steel industry shut down. Now that was more economic driven. The timber industry was more of a government shutdown, right? But because there was small towns, The impact was felt a lot slower. It didn't get the same media attention. And unfortunately, what you see now are these incredible forest fires, right? Because the private industry is no longer um, responsible for the federally managed lands. You are now seeing, you know, we had a 400,000 acre fire in Southern Oregon this year. The air quality in Bend this summer was ranked last in the world. I mean, that is something... That is devastating. And so people want to talk about, oh, we need to, you know, stop with hydrocarbons, you know, unfortunately, 99% of our vehicles are are gas vehicles and only 1% are electric. You want to actually make a dent on, on hydrocarbons in Oregon, you got to stop the forest fires, because that has a devastating impact on people's health right? Older citizens, it affects the most in pregnant women. I mean, those are two those are two people that we should be protecting at all costs, in my opinion. And the other devastating thing that happens with the forest fires is that you have the tourist season is the summer in Oregon, right? And if you were in Oregon this summer, or over the last 10 summers, and you happen to come across a fire, you're going back to wherever you came from. And you tell everyone, don't go take a trip to Oregon. And that is really bad for the local economy. So I think that timber is going to be another issue. And that is a federal issue at the end of the day. You know, and it's really sad that we have not taken responsibility for the fires. If you want to help out the environment, your number one job in Oregon should be shutting down forest fires.
2: So uh, I think you, you will hear some alignment on, on that question with some uh, with Democrats in the legislature, although maybe a different approach. My final question before Alex takes us back to wonky land is on race. And I think this congressional district will probably have significantly more racial diversity than the second congressional district, although maybe not. There's certainly the general election in the sixth than the the primary election in the second, if it goes that way. We've talked to a lot of our guests about 2020 being the year, in addition to the COVID side of things, it was also this racial, racial awakening. And so I I guess I'm curious from you, as a Republican candidate, a political party who notoriously has performed poorly with voters of color, communities of color, um, what would be your approach to try to win the support of the Latino population in Oregon, which is growing the Asian American population and other communities of color? That's a great question. Yeah, I do believe that the 5th District don't hold me to this, is I
1: think 10% is Latino. I think it's the numbers are very low in in the other racial minorities. But I think that, that Latinos care deeply about this country. And I think there's actually a lot of alignment. And I think you've actually seen kind of the swing back to the Republican Party that we had, you know, maybe 20 years ago under George W. Bush. Percentages are going up. If you look at the percentage of, now, obviously, Latinos are come from a lot of different backgrounds. But just if you look at just uh, Mexican-Americans, first-generation men, I believe 73% of them are in the workforce, which is an incredibly high level. I think it's only 65% for white men. So I mean, this is a population that cares about the economy, that cares deeply about taxes, and that cares deeply about education, and that cares deeply about inflation, right? Because When you are trying to raise your family and bring them up, you know, higher education is critical, right? You want the next generation to be able to go to college. And being able to pay for eggs, you know, which are up 30% year over year, steak, which is, or beef in general, up 30%. I mean, these are numbers that are really shocking. And unfortunately... These bread and butter issues are really hurting Americans because of the inflation issues. Um, they, they're hurting the population that lives paycheck to paycheck much more than people who are much wealthier. So I think that you can talk just about, you know, job creation and keeping the federal government and taxes lower. I think that these are important issues. And I, and I do believe that higher education is is important. And, and I think they're critical to, uh, to uh, these populations.
0: Thank you. Right. And Jimmy, I will just ask you one policy question, one quick question, and then we'll close. In terms of, you talked a lot about inflation. I think you've mentioned it three or four times. I'm just kind of curious, both from your professional background in finance, plus you're clearly paying, I think, uh, much closer attention to the sort of economics behind these issues than your average congressional candidate. What do you see as, like, the because there's a lot of debate in terms of, right, what the primary cause of inflation is? Some people say, Joe Biden spending too much money. Other people say the Federal Reserve needs to raise their rates. Other people say, no, we just need the you know docks or the ports to work harder in Los Angeles because I guess they weren't running 24 hours a day at some point, which is shocking to me that that was something that happened at one point. What do you sort of contribute the cause of inflation to be and you know what would basically you want to do in Congress to help address
1: it? Well wouldn't it nice we have a port of Portland right now with all these <laughs> uh, ships sitting out there in Los Angeles? Yeah, inflation is a serious issue. And I do believe that the federal government has an outsized influence on it. You know, there are a lot of uh, economists on the left that would argue that this is a global phenomenon. And if you look at throughput in the ports in in America, in the spring, it was up 16% year over year. So think about that number. That is a huge leap. And you compare that with the European Union, which is another massive economy in the world, they were roughly 1%. So think about the difference. Think about the amount of goods that are coming into the country through our ports. The inflation is bound to happen, right? When the federal government Decides to spend trillions of dollars, right? I mean, and this is this is happening with, and it is in combination with the Fed as well, because the Fed has had a huge uh, buying program, which they are slowly tapering, thankfully, but unfortunately, it does. The burden does lie with the Biden administration. I, I think that they took a look at the numbers and they decided to pass a couple of these bills which are adding greatly to the inflationary numbers. And I think if you look at the raw numbers, uh, it, it's hard to not argue with that statement. Gotcha.
0: And uh, now a very unserious question. Uh, I will say- when <laughs> A you rigid fir-
2: drop-off there, Alex. Yeah, oh, this, this is a rigid
0: drop-off. And you have, to, you have to promise to be honest when you answer this question. Oh so you, boy. Have, you have to be very honest. Uh, <laughs> when I first saw your campaign video, I, I, I actually laughed out loud because it was so genius. Who, who invented the Trump-backer nickname? Was that you? Was that your campaign director? Was that a consultant? Uh, it still um, literally pops in my head. Like when I was <laughs> I was telling someone you were coming on our podcast, and I literally called you
1: Jimmy Trump-backer. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, So the marketing
0: really gimmicks funny. are working very well.
1: <laughs> so as you could imagine, my name- <laughs> Can be transferred to a lot of different things. Not all of them very flattering. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it it was basically a combination of I sat down with our ad people and I said, "Listen, my name." is very I don't want to say it's strange. it's just it's it's abnormal, right? And it's actually it's a totally American name. This was not the name that was uh, that we had brought over uh, when we came to America. Um, they actually shockingly tried to Americanize it, if you can believe that. <laughs> and so like you know in my in my head, I'm like, okay, what are you guys? okay, what are we thinking? We're thinking Smith johnson or crumb packer <laughs> like what sounds more american you know? <laughs> so they went with crumb packer which you know is, is uh but you know i i i'm very proud um of my forebears and um you know of, of the people who've come before me and you know i i, I do love the name and it, it does lends itself to humor so uh
2: there, w- and- there was a uh an Oregon, i think it was a congressman with the last name crumb packer is that the same family or is that a different
1: yeah, yeah, that's my that's my great grandfather. Yeah, no kidding. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. That's part uh,
2: of the deep roots in Oregon. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, I mean we, um, I mean seven generations. You know, you've, you've you've been around for a while. So yeah, yeah. So he was, and you know that was certainly someone that you have to admire as a young kid. And you know, when I was studying politics, uh, at Georgetown, I was you know it was kind of in the back of my mind that. You know, if the opportunity ever presented itself and I was ever blessed enough to go back and represent what I believe is the greatest people in the greatest state in the, in the union. And, you know, unfortunately, and as you guys have discussed on this podcast many times, we do have a lot of issues that need to be dealt with, but I see unlimited potential in this state. And I think we just need good leaders to step up and, 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 and try, help try and
2: take us there. Great place to end it, Alex. Yeah, well, great. Uh, Well,
0: Jimmy, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on and talk about a wide range of issues. Before we let you go, where can people follow your work? Where can they find more information about your campaign? Where can they go to donate or volunteer or endorse you? Where can they go to find all things Jimmy?
1: Sure. So Facebook is obviously a great place. You know, Jimmy Crumpacker for Congress. You can find it on there. If you want to donate, you can go to WinRed. Um, I'm sure Ben is jumping on right now. Um, you know,
2: <laughs> I, I have WinRed blocked that. If you have an actual link, we can talk, but... Uh so
1: so ben if you donate on win red i will write you a five-star review which all of your audience needs to do.
2: this is clear extortion <laughs> well jimmy thank you again for coming on uh we re- i really enjoyed the conversation and uh, we hope we can have you back again
1: Yeah, guys, I really appreciate it. And, you know, I think there are a lot of areas that we didn't touch on, which would be fun to uh, be fun to talk about in the future. So thanks a lot. Appreciate your time.
2: All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll see you at the next episode.